Good morning. Uh, grab your Bibles. It's good to be with you guys. We are uh, in the book of James. We're going to be in the book of James for a long time. It's helpful if you bring your Bible with you. We'll put some text on the screen, but it's always better if uh, you just don't take our word for it from up front, but you see it in front of you. So James chapter 1 is where we're going to be, uh, starting in verse 16, uh, 16, 17, 18. I think we just have three verses today. So Matthew said 35 minutes, no more than 55. It will be good. Some of you are like, yeah, that may be a reality. Here we go. Uh, others of you, if you're just visiting, they're like, is he really going to go for 55 minutes? No. Maybe. All right. <laughs> Let's read our text. Uh, we're going to just start right away. Verse 16, 16, 17, and 18. Here's where it goes. Do not be deceived. Now let's stop there. Uh, we're going to make it all the way through, but, but he kind of comes out of the gate with a pretty uh, bold warning of deception. And he's saying to this group of people, I don't want you to be deceived. Now, do you think that it is possible for you to be deceived? Is it possible for you to maybe believe a lie, to buy, it, buy into something that's not true, to be led astray? I mean, if you didn't think it was at least possible, you would be pretty arrogant. Uh, there, there is this reality that we have to embrace that none of us are above being deceived. That we can uh, start to believe things that aren't true. We can get really into things that aren't helpful or accurate. Like that's just a, a threat we all face. In fact, when Paul uh, speaks of the devil, who is, who is said to be the deceiver of the world, uh, he's called the father of lies, and he's good at it. Uh, he's crafty and can make uh, bad things seem good. Uh, he, he says in Ephesians 6 that he has schemes. Now, that's a pretty interesting thing to think about. It's football season, which is the greatest time of year. Uh, so when you watch a football game, uh, you will have, you'll see an offensive scheme or a defensive scheme. It's like their game plan of how they're going to attack the opponent. Like this is what we've come up with to attack the opponent. This is our scheme. And it's like he has schemes, the devil's schemes. And it's kind of mind-blowing to think about, but there are thought-out plans developed for the purpose of our deception, for the purpose of your deception. And it's not just going to come straight at you in an obvious way that it is crafty. It's like, if I could just get him to buy into this, and if we could just get them really into this, and if we can, this gets leads there. Like, there are thought-out schemes and plans for our deception. So, um, before we kind of press on in our text, I just want us to understand that deception is a, uh, is a real threat we all face. And it would be helpful for your soul and, our, and your attention as we dive into the rest, rest of this passage for you to at least admit, I'm not above that. Um, I, I could be led astray. I could be deceived into sin. I could be deceived into uh, bad doctrine. I can be deceived away from my God. Um, and if you kind of have that awareness of your own sinful nature, this will be helpful as we look further in this text of what James is saying. So deception is a real threat that we all face. And this is where it kind of connects to our text here today. And we can be more susceptible to deception during trials. Like when you're, um, when you just got laid off, when you just got bad news from the doctor, when you're in the midst of marital strife, when you're in the midst of relational conflict, when you're kind of in those trials, we're more vulnerable to believe lies when life is hard than we are when life is good. Like there, there's a vulnerability in there to be deceived. So uh, James is talking to uh, the 12 tribes and the dispersia. We got that in, in verse 1. And, and that's uh, Jewish Christians that because of persecution 
have been scattered. They left their homes, they left their community, they left their jobs, uh, and that's going to create a hardship in their life. They're, they're fleeing, and they're in these difficult trial situations, and James to them says, I know life is hard, you're in the midst of these trials, but in your trials, don't be deceived. Don't, don't, that was his warning for them, don't be deceived in the midst of your trials. So let's read uh, the passage that we had last week to kind of get a running start and see the context to which James gives this warning uh, not to be deceived. So starting in verse 12, let's get a running start into this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's still in that kind of theme in chapter 1 of trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. uh, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Basically, if I could paraphrase this, he's saying, um, you can do stupid all by yourself. You don't have to blame God for that. Uh, and, and this is tricky because following Christ uh, is the narrow road. Like he, Jesus was really clear from the beginning, like, hey, you want to follow me, take up your cross. Uh, they hate you, they hated me first. Like there were some really upfront warnings about the difficulties if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a fallen world. It's like it's not going to be easy. And that can lead you into some hardships and difficulties. But your own sinful decisions that can also lead you into some hardships and difficulties. So he's saying, don't, don't be deceived. Don't, don't get confused here. The, the reason that you are in a difficult situation is because you tried to follow Christ in Jerusalem in the first century where it was really difficult to follow Christ and you were faithful to him and that meant you were persecuted, you were scattered, and that led to your hardship. But the reason you can't get along with the rest of the people in your church is because you can't keep your mouth shut. Right? We'll get into that in a little bit with your taming the tongue. Right? Or the reason you're quarreling with everybody around you is because of your own sinful desires. We'll get into that in chapter 4. He's saying, don't, don't blame God for that. That's you. Like, like you and your decisions got you into that mess. So don't, don't be deceived is what he's saying. Um, or uh, you put it this way. Don't let your hard times lead you to make false conclusions about God. Don't, don't let your hard times lead you to make false conclusions about God. Like life is, oh, God's forgot about me. God doesn't care about me anymore. He, he's, he's, he's against me. He's like, don't, don't let your hard times lead you to make false conclusions about God. Which, when you think about it, is kind of at the heart of the deceiver's motives. You think of uh, even in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Eve. That was an attack on God's character. Can he be trusted? Is he holding out on you? Is he really good? Like there's this undermining of God's goodness in the midst of that situation. And they're in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine if they were at the DMV? Right? Or the ICU? Like if there's situations where it's like my life is not going well, I'm a lot more vulnerable to kind of questions God's goodness. They're in the Garden of Eden, and God's goodness is being attacked here. So guys, listen, deception is a threat on a normal day. How much more is it a threat when we're in the trials and difficulties uh, of this fallen world and this broken life? It's a threat that we have to be aware of. So have you ever been, this is maybe a little bit vulnerable question, you have to raise your hand, but... But have you ever been in a situation where you're questioning God? 
or more specifically, where you find yourself questioning God's goodness. Like, I don't, I don't know if God still loves me. I don't know if God still cares. I think I, God has forgotten about me. Like, have you been in that situation where you're just like, you're wrestling, wondering whether or not God is good, whether or not he still loves you, whether or not he cares about you. And here's what I know about that situation. It wasn't a fun situation. Like, we find ourselves questioning the goodness of God when times are hard, when, when things are difficult. Nobody, like, questions God's goodness on vacation, like when everything's going well. So in those moments when life is hard, how do we fight back? Like, how do we guard ourselves from drifting away from our God? How, how do, what do we do when those thoughts and doubts kind of come into our mind? Because I know some of you in here, it's like, I've been there. Like, or you're there now. You're like, what I'm going through now, like, I'm wondering currently, is God still good? Does he love me? Has he forgot about me? And others of you, you just need to take notes because that day's coming. Like, life is hard and it's difficult. How do we stay faithful to God, in love with God, confident in his goodness in the midst of the hardships of life? That's where we're going. So let's, let's read all of our texts this time. We'll make it all the way through, I promise. Do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, I'm going to break my promise. Uh, I'm going to stop here. Uh, <coughs> beloved brothers, I want, I want you to notice this. Uh, James, the author of this, uh, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem from which these people were scattered. James is their pastor. He loves them. You, he uses this language, language brothers a lot as he moves forward. Here he's saying, my beloved brothers. Now, we're going to get to some harder, more challenging pointed things as we go through the book of James. Never lose sight that this is coming from a person who deeply cares about them. Like, I'm saying tough stuff to you. I'm, I'm challenging you because I care for you. So he's saying, my beloved brothers, don't forget, James is a pastor here. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, here, here, let me give you the, the overview of this. James wanted the first century believers to not be deceived by their trials in a way that pulled them away from God. He, he, he wanted them not to be deceived by their trials in a way that kind of pulled them away from God. And we see this. We, we, we see this. We see people who um, walk closely with God and tell the trial. And it's like, what happened to so-and-so? Where are they at? It's like they walk through a hard time in life, and in that hard time of life, their walk kind of started to go away from God. We want the same thing that James wants. He's like, I know you're going through hard things in life. Don't let it lead you to walk away or pull you away from a good God. So here's what he does. He reminds them of God's goodness. And he does it in kind of three specific ways. He, he, he reminds them of God's goodness in creation. He reminds them of God's goodness in salvation. And he reminds them of God's goodness in their future redemption. And you're like, I don't know if I saw that. That's why we're going to let's go through it together. So let's do that. Look back at verse 17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down, from the Father of lights. Now stop there. Nowhere else, this is interesting, nowhere else in all of the Bible is God ever referred to as the Father of lights. This is the only place that that comes up. So you're saying like, why? Why would James use this kind of very unique description to refer to God? What's his point? Why is he doing that? So um, when God is referred to as Father, 
oftentimes we think of kind of this paternal caregiver provider, which is true and fitting for God. But most often in Scripture, when God is referred to as Father, uh, it's pointing to him as creator or the originator. He fathered this world. So like, for example, in Job, it says, uh, who fathers the drops of dew? And what's the answer to that? God. It's not a tricky question. Uh, God fathers the drops of dew. Now, it's not that he cares for the drops of dew. He's saying that's where they come from. Like he originated, like he, he brought this forth. So you kind of have this idea of father, father as creator here. And the word used for light, father of lights, uh, is a word that talks about lights in, in the heavens. So the sun, the, the moon, the stars, and the sky. Uh, so when you get this phrase together, father of lights, he's saying he's the one that originated the sun in the sky, the stars in the sky. He hung the stars, he hung the moon, like this is the God that I'm talking about. So God is, creator is in mind here. And if you go back to Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, when he hung the stars in the sky, he stepped back and he said, it is what? It's good. It's good. That's like what he made, of, what he uh, determined of his creation. It's good. So James is saying, don't be deceived. Our God is good, and good things come from our God. Now, in our trials and in our hardships and difficulties, uh, we can tend to forget that because all we see is just the problem in front of us, the situation we're dealing with, the conflict at work, the conflict in the marriage, the diagnosis from the doctor. Like We're just kind of consumed by what's in front of us, and we forget the goodness of God in the heavens, in the sun, in the stars, in the moon, like we miss it. Like to oversimplify this, um, let me put it this way. When you're in the midst of your trials, you can be so wrecked by, by the thing that's causing pain in your life that you forget that the sun rose today. And it rose today because God is good and in his grace, he brought out the sunshine. He brings the rain. Like we tend to just forget that. The, the everyday beautiful gifts of God that we get and we don't deserve in our trials, like we, we miss that. And Jesus said, don't, don't miss that. This is the God that, that made the sunrise today. This is the God that hung the stars. Like don't, don't disconnect your problems from our good God that created this world. But trials can tend to miss that. For example, um, let's say you're a parent and you have a kid and your kid wants uh, the new iPhone and you say no and they throw a fit. Um, so you send them to their room. I bet in that moment they don't turn around and say, I'm just thankful I have a room. Right? Probably not an experience that you have. Like, but it's like in those moments, you're just like, no, how do you, don't you care about me? Why would you withhold that from me? Don't you care that I want? Like, you're just kind of consumed with what they want. They forget the provision and the care that you provide for them. It's like, you have a room. Like, you know, people don't have a room. Like, go, go to your room. That's just like, go to your blessing that you have that you don't deserve. But, but we tend to miss that in that. that. That's us in our trials. Like, how dare, like, God, why wouldn't you help me? How could you walk me through this? And it's like, uh, did you see the sunrise today? Yeah, you don't deserve that. Like the air that you're breathing right now, like that's a gift for me. Like there's a theological term to this. This is called common grace. You can write that down. You can feel smart. Uh, common grace is, refers to the gifts that God gives uh, to everybody, whether they believe in him or not. Like if you believe in God or you don't believe in God, the sun is shining today. Well, I don't know if it's today. It's kind of cloudy. Sun's out. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, you, you get to breathe oxygen. That is the grace of God. Like he's saying, don't overlook those simple, amazing gifts that we have. 
And that word coming down, he says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. That phrase coming down uh, communicates a continuous action. So when he's talking about God as creator, he's saying, I'm not talking about God as creator and creation as something that happened a long time ago. I'm talking about God as creator every day. Like his goodness and his creation continually comes down. Now, there is a belief in a God who's kind of not involved, like he did it once and stepped away. It's called deism. And deism kind of believes God is like he wound the clock and he just stepped away. But James is like, no, no, no. He is actively involved in his creation. It is constantly or continually coming down from this Father of lights. Like every day he he is involved in his creation. Now, why is he? Because he's good. And that's the point that James is driving home. Like he is a good God that can be trusted. And it says that every good gift and every perfect gift uh, is from above. So this every good gift, every perfect gift, he's like, it's beyond just the Father of light. It's beyond just the sun and the moon. Like everything that we have in this created world that we enjoy, where do you think that came from? God. Look at that. Your, your capacity for companionship, that you can enjoy friendship, where did that come from? God, the, the gift of marriage, uh, this union and special relationship between a man and a woman and covenant relationship, where, where did that come from? Whose idea was that? God. The fun recreation of marriage, you know what I'm talking about? Who came up with that? God. That's God's idea, right? Your ability to laugh, taste buds, that you can actually enjoy food, barbecue, Barbecue comes from God. You didn't know that. It is true. It's, that's God. Like all of these, like our capacity for relationships and enjoyment and laughter and fun and, and taste and celebration, all of that is from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift, like you didn't come up with that. That is because a good God has made you to enjoy these things. It speaks of his character. So in the midst of your trials, James is like, don't lose sight of that. Don't don't lose sight of these simple, wonderful things that show us the goodness of God every day. Don't be deceived by your trials. Or you can put it this way. Don't let your trials distort your view of God. Don't don't make these conclusions that he doesn't love you because you're going through a hard time. Or that he has forgot about you. Or that he's not good. It's like that would be a false conclusion. Notice how the verse 17 ends. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down constantly from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no shadow due to change, no shifting shadow, maybe your translation says. He's saying God's goodness is always at high noon. Like there's never this shadow cast because of he's changed. Like his character doesn't change. You can put it this way. Um, just because your circumstances have changed doesn't mean God's character has changed. That's important to remember. Just because your circumstances have changed doesn't mean God's character has changed. He is still the same good God that hung the stars in the sky and is giving you air to breathe currently. Like, he is consistent. But God's goodness is bigger than than that. He doesn't just extend common grace for all of us to enjoy. He also extends uh, special grace, which is another theological term that kind of talks to a, a unique uh, display of God's grace and favor to people. And it's shown up in salvation. Let's look at uh, verse 18. It says this, Of his own will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth. We'll stop there. That phrase, brought us forth, uh, means to give us life. Or maybe your translation says, gave us birth. So just like God is the father of creation, he's the originator of the heavens and the stars and the sky and the earth, he is also the father of human beings, like he made us. But James is not just talking about physical life here. Um, that phrase, by the word of truth, he brought us forth by the word of truth, it kind of cues us in that there's more that James is referring to than just the fact that you are alive physically. He's talking about the idea that you are alive spiritually because he's writing to brothers, right? People that have faith in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's saying, hey, you don't just have physical life. If you want to talk about God's goodness, okay, you're alive, one, but let's go even further than that. You're spiritually alive, like, and you're, you're spiritually alive because of his will, his choosing. It's, it's his grace that he has done. Um, James is, is kind of reinforcing the goodness of God and the fact that they are uh, not just born, but, but born again. And that word uh, or phrase, word of truth, cues us into that. Because the, in the New Testament, the word or the word of truth or the word of God or the gospel is the means or the conduit to which God brings about new life and salvation to people. If you remember uh, Paul in the beginning of Romans, uh, Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. He's saying this is what happens. Like I go into cities, I preach the gospel, uh, and yeah, some people hate me, uh, but, but I see people get new life in Christ. Like, I just see God work through the proclamation of his word, and, and I see God do stuff. Like, there's power in it, and the power of God bringing new life to people. Second Corinthians 5.17, that anybody who's in Christ is a new creation. If you guys remember the, in John chapter 3, Jesus had that conversation with the Pharisee, Nicodemus, um, that was kind of curious, but, you know, uh, Pharisees and, and Jesus, that's like two different teams, so he kind of comes to him at night, like, I got some questions, I'm curious, and, and what does Jesus tell him? He needs to be what? Born again. And Nicodemus is taking that literally, like, he's missing it, it's like, I don't think mom's going to like that, I don't know if that's going to work, but he's like, no, 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 I'm not talking about physical life, I'm telling you, you need spiritual life. You don't need to be born again physically. You're already born, but you're dead spiritually, and you need somebody to give you spiritual life. And 1 Peter 1.23, it says that you have been born again, not of uh, perishable seed. You already have that in a body that breaks down and dies, but you need imperishable seed, something that's going to last forever, spiritual life. And he says you have been born again through the living, abiding word of God. Like God's power has come through his word to give you life. So when he's talking to these people struggling in these trials, he's saying, don't, don't you see the goodness of God? Don't you see the goodness of God all around you? Did you see the goodness of God in the stars and in the, in the sky and the sun? Don't you see the goodness of God in your own spiritual salvation? And it comes from his word. Not only just in creation where the father of light said, let there be light and there was light. Uh, just as he spoke creation into existence, your new spiritual life comes from his word. It's the power of his word. So, you want to know how good God is? Look at the stars. Look at the sun. Take a deep breath. It's his common grace. But it doesn't end there. Look also at his special grace. That you have been given new life in Christ. That you have been saved by his will. How good is our God? He's brought salvation. And he did that. Not you. 
You didn't do that. You didn't like muster up the courage today. Like, I'm going to be reconciled to God today. I'm going to do it. Right? I'm, I'm going to kind of fix this sin problem. I'm going to make myself new. You, didn't, you don't kind of muster that up. Like what it says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. You ever wonder, like, why am I saved? Like, like why am I forgiven? Why, why do I have new life in Christ? Why, why do I come to church and praise God? Like, why do I care what God thinks? Like, when, when other people don't. Like, what, what, why did, what happened to me? It's like, well, you've been saved. You've been given new life. Why? Because God willed it. Or maybe your translation says, in, of his choosing. Like, he, he initiated that. And he, he pursued you. He, he brought that about. It's like, well, why, why did God do that? That's James' point. Because he's good. It's, it's his goodness that does that. This isn't common grace. This is special grace. It's not a common grace shown to everybody. It's a special grace shown to his people. And that special grace or our salvation has an outcome. Let's read the rest of verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should have a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, that first fruits is an agricultural term um, that was used to communicate kind of the initial stage of something that gives promise for more to come. So uh, we got several peach trees at, at my house. We always love it when peach season comes and you kind of pick the first ripe peach and it's good. That tells us we got more to look forward to. Like this is good, we're going to get a good crop, but it's kind of that first fruit that you get that gives you an indication of what's to come. And the Bible uses the term first fruits quite often. Let me give you uh, a few references in the New Testament. This is in Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13. You have that one? It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the what? First fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here's another one. This is Romans 8. Uh, we go here often. Wonderful chapter. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the what? First fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's one more. This is 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the fact that Christ was raised from the dead is a first fruit to showing that we will be raised from the dead. Like we see new life in Christ. It's like this is a sign of what's more to come. So then you go back to Romans 8 and it's like, and all right, now our bodies are groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies because we have hope because Christ, we see his new body and we have that hope to what's to come. So it's like you, you're, you're the first fruits. What he's saying is you are a part of something bigger. Like this is just the beginning your trial, your hardship, it's not the end. This movement doesn't end in your persecution, just like Christianity didn't end with Christ's death on the cross. Like there's resurrection, there's new life, there's more to come. So don't get lost in your trial and down in your trial. Your trial doesn't win. The Romans don't win. Your persecutor, uh, who's ever persecuted, like they don't win. Like so don't be so overwhelmed by what you're going through in your hardship. He's saying uh, you have to be able to see beyond your trial. You have to be able to see beyond your trial. And the Israelites struggled with this. Like you can just kind of be consumed with what's in front of you. So if you guys are familiar with the story of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years, God shows up, shows up and shows out. 
like in those 10 plagues, if you kind of get into each plague, he's like basically uh, putting down every Egyptian god and showing himself as the one true God. And he rescues the people uh, out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, so they walk on dry land, and they go into the wilderness, and what happens? They don't have any bread. Or they get to another place, they don't have any water. Um, And they start to complain. And here's the conclusion that the Israelites make. God brought us out here to kill us. And you're like, really? He did all that to bring you out here to kill you. That's his plan? Like, that's the conclusion you make? And it wasn't like God is absent-minded of like, hey, I took care of all the plagues in the Red Sea. None of you brought water. It wasn't that. Like, they're still looking for God to provide. But they made this bad conclusion about the character of God because they were in a hard time. They thought... God's out to get us. Come on. You mean the God that just saved you miraculously, declaring his love for you, is out to get you? Please. But I guess when you're thirsty, you make some bad conclusions. And I guess when we're in the middle of our trials, we can make some bad conclusions about God. I mean, do you think God sent his son to the cross to declare his love for you, to be pierced, beaten, and killed for you, only to let your trial be your ruin, only let cancer get the best of you, only let unemployment wreck you. Come on. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't let your trial distort your view of God. Or think of it like this. Don't get your theology from your circumstances. Rather, let your theology guide you through your circumstances. We have too many people that get their theology from their circumstances. They go through a hardship so they make a conclusion about God. God's forgotten about me. God doesn't care about me anymore. God doesn't love me. It's like, where did you get that? <laughs> Rather than like knowing God loves you because he's declared it already on the cross that while we're yet sinners, God sent his son to die declaring his love for us. So why would you let your trial speak louder than your God? Why would you let your trial speak louder than God's word? Like, don't, don't be deceived. You, rather, you need to know that God loves you and let that guide you through how you handle cancer unemployment, marital strife and conflict. Like that should lead you. So let me just ask you this. Do you think you're able to see beyond your trials? Because your trials are like right in front of you. Do you think you are able to look beyond it and still see the character of God? So for parents again, let's play out this scenario. Let's say that you have Uh, a teenager, 16, 17, and they just broke up with their boyfriend or the girlfriend. And they are devastated. Like, they're crying. This is the end of the world. Like, they just, their their heart is so broken. And you, as their parent, you're like, you're going to be fine. Secretly, you're pretty happy about it. Let's be honest. Uh, But they're like, their 16-year-old heart is devastated. But you, because you've lived a little bit more life, You've gone through these things. You can look at your 16, 17 year old and be like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. In fact, this is probably good. Um, 
I'm, I'm kind of glad. that. I mean, you don't see it now, but you're going to look back and you're, you're going to be thankful for this. You're going to be okay. But, but we know in their mind, in their 16-year-old head, in their 16-year-old heart, it's like the end of the world. Like, how could this ever happen? How, what, I can't face tomorrow. Like, you, they're wrecked by this. What if our Heavenly Father looks at us when our 35-year-old, our 45-year-old, our 65-year-old, our 75-year-old heart is broken. And the capacity of our 55-year-old mind just thinks like, life is over. Like, how could I ever recover? Like, this is just the end. Did you not hear the diagnosis? Did you not get that? Did you not see these papers, the divorce papers? Did you not get this? Like, life is over. And our, like, 55-year-old mind and heart is just crushed. And our Heavenly Father looks at us and is like, you're going to be fine. No, no, seriously. Like, I have eternity in mind. You're going to be fine. In fact, I'm kind of glad that this happened because it's bringing some things to the surface that we really need to deal with and talk about. Can can you see that? Are you able to see beyond your hardships? Listen, guys, life is hard. It's not a secret. I mean, it's going to throw some haymakers. It's going to hit us hard. But in our hardships, we can't lose sight of God's goodness. It is impossible to walk faithfully with God when we are questioning his goodness. Like, how are you supposed to stay faithful with him if you don't even really know if he loves you? If you're questioning if he still cares about you. We're about to pivot in the book of James where he's going to start to get really practical. And he's going to start to talk about behavior things, like how we act and how we behave as his people. But before he makes that pivot, he's laying a foundation here. And the foundation is God's goodness. Because you build a life of faithfulness on top of a conviction that you know that God is good. And if you don't have that foundation, and then you try to be obedient to God, that's just going to crumble. Nobody is obedient to a God they don't believe is good. But if you can kind of reestablish that foundation that despite our circumstances, here's what we know to be true to our core. God is good. He loves me. He can be trusted. Then in the midst of hard times, we can build on that obedience. So when he turns, he kind of pivots, and we get into, like, how we ought to live, you have got to first get a hold of a conviction that God is good, despite any hardships that we go through. But your view of God shapes your life. Your view of God shapes your life. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, I'm really confident. I, I had this last week. I still haven't got it back yet because I'm pretty sure the opening line of this book, um, I couldn't find it because my daughter borrowed it uh, when she went off to college. But I think he says something like the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Your view of God shapes your life. Like, what do you think about when you think about God? Do you think that he's good? Do you think that he's holy? Do you think that he's worthy of your worship? Do you think that he's worthy of your obedience? Do you think he owes you anything? Like, what what comes to mind when you think about God? It's going to shape your life. And when you go through trials, it's going to reveal what it is you think about God. You guys are familiar with the story of Job. Job was a man who walked faithfully with God. Uh, But in the story of Job, Satan makes an accusation against Job to God. And what he said is that the only reason that Job is faithful to you is because you're so good to him. 
In fact, if you weren't so good to him, uh, he wouldn't be faithful to you. So God allowed Satan to put Job through the ringer. And it's like the stuff he put Job through, it's hard to even comprehend. And you're like, well, was it a trial or a temptation? You bet you. Right? Because in Satan's mind, it was a temptation. Because the temptation is, I want you to curse God. I want you to turn away from God. But from God who knew Job because he made Job, he's like, well, this is going to be a revealer. It's a, tr- it's a trial that is going to reveal what he already knew to be true in Job. And what does Job express? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. It's like whether, whether I've got good stuff or i got bad stuff, it doesn't change the fact that God is worthy of worship. Blessed be the Lord. And church, don't, don't we want that to be true of us? That we're not a group of people that are just faithful to God when everything's going well. That we're, we're in love with God no matter what because God is God. And he's worthy of it. And we have a foundation of God's goodness that cannot be shaken by any trial. So here's what I'd love for you to kind of take with you. Uh, holding on to the goodness of God is the key to staying faithful to God. Holding on to the goodness of God is the key to staying faithful to God. That's what James is doing in here. You're in the midst of a trial. He's like, guys, but don't be deceived. Don't let your hard uh, situation or your hard circumstances lead you to make false conclusions about God. He's good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I mean, that's what he's pushing on. So so here's what we need to do. We need to do what James is doing for them. when times are hard, reinforce the goodness of God. Times are hard for them, what does James do? He reinforces the goodness of God. When times are hard for us, we need to reinforce the goodness of God. Because those are the times where we're most vulnerable to be deceived. Where we're most vulnerable to question God's character. Now, there's three areas he can, we can turn our attention to to do that, which he does. Creation, salvation, redemption. So I want to just get really practical with you as we land the plane. One, this is, this is true all the time, but I would say especially when times are hard, enjoy creation. Enjoy creation. That's not an oversimple thing. Like, look up. The heavens declare the glory of God. When you're in the midst of hard times, notice the sunrise. Notice the sunset. Enjoy good food and good fellowship with good friends. That is all a gift from God. And Christians should be the best at this. Because when we look at a sunrise, we don't just be like, well, it's the sun rays coming through the gas atmospheres to give us the color. We're like, no, that's God. That's God. That's his beauty. That's his gift to us. Like, especially when times are rough, enjoy creation. Enjoy friendship. Enjoy the stars. Like, notice the goodness of God all around you. Uh, number two, be grateful for salvation. Be grateful for salvation, especially when you're going through hard times. And you think that you, you're, not, you're not getting a fair shake. Remember that Christ has declared his love for you on the cross. Remember that you have been completely forgiven. Remember that you have been adopted into his family. And number three, look forward to redemption. Especially when you're going through hard times. Understand that you are the first fruits. There is more of God's unfolding redeeming plan to happen. That there will be a day where he wipes every tear from your eye. That the clouds part and he returns and he rescues his people and he makes all things new. And we get to live with him forever. Especially when times are hard. Remember that. 
Guys, life is hard. Don't be deceived. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Now, let me connect. I just want to like pastorally connect the dots between what we just talked about and celebrating communion. Because the worst thing that could happen is communion just turns into this like ritual that we do every time that's disconnected from what we're hearing in the Word of God. It's something we never want to take lightly. Um, when we take communion, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that every time that we do this, we declare the Lord's death until he returns. Have you ever thought about that? Because that sounds kind of odd. That's what we're doing. We're declaring the Lord's death until he returns. But here's the declaration that we're making. Life's hard. We live in a fallen, broken world because our Savior came down to it and we killed him. Like, we deal with death in communion. Like There is hardship, there's difficulties, there's suffering. It's a reality of life. But whose death are we remembering? Christ's death. So in communion, we remember both that life is hard and that God is good. And I pray that every time we take communion, no matter what you're going through, you remember the goodness of God is greater than the hardships of life. And it would just fuel your fire to be faithful to him through it all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for being such short-sighted children that get devastated by things that don't eternally matter. That begin to question your care for us because we didn't get something we wanted or life didn't go our way when you have loudly declared your love for us on the cross. I pray that the cross always speaks louder to us than our circumstances and that we would always be aware of your goodness. And being aware of your goodness would lead to our worship. pray this in your name. Amen.